it feels so binary in some ways, right? Like it's theatrical release where you're um, you're going into a theater um, with strangers more or less, um, or you're watching alone at home online. And for us, this is kind of somewhere in the middle where there's a lot of art house, a lot of documentary films we're releasing, but you're going out in person, but probably watching with an affinity group. If you're going to your church um, or if you're going to your yoga studio or going to your ACLU chapter um, to watch one of these films, you have some sort of connective tissue already. So it, may, it, it is this concept of, of social cinema. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro, joined today by Daniel Luria, Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, and a bit later on, Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. Uh, it's, a, it's a Box Office Pro-a-palooza, and Daniel, the three of us, a little bit under a week from today, uh, will be at CinemaCon. This is our final pre-CinemaCon episode. And uh, I think we have a great lineup for you today, box office analysis, news items, and a feature interview with an app-based exhibition platform that is bringing niche cinema to underserved areas in the United States and beyond. Daniel, how you doing? Good. Excited to chat about box office, chat about all the news, and really excited to see people from this industry in person on Monday. I think we're all a little bit nervous and equal parts excited. But yeah, uh, a packed episode today. Let's start with box office analysis with Sean. But before we do, we have a message from our sponsor. Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right, it's Oreo popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo-based cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today. So, Sean, it's been a, a topsy-turvy couple of weeks here with the Delta variant. We're learning something new every weekend. What did we learn from the box office this past weekend? Well, you know, I think really the number one story clearly is is Free Guy. And it's essentially, now I want to preface this a little bit by saying expectations mean a lot of different things these days, but it opened above expectations, or at least what expectations were going into the weekend. This is a movie that we had forecasted could have opened anywhere between 15 and $35 million over the past couple of months. And it was trending lower in recent weeks, largely due to Delta variant concerns. And we it was becoming clear that, you know, maybe it was time to start reeling back in some of the more optimistic uh, projections. But as it turns out for this movie, that turned out to be unnecessary in, in most regards because this is, after a $28.4 million opening, a really good result for an original film, not strictly based on any existing IP, and this is not a, really a time of the summer that's known for producing massive blockbuster hits by any means, uh, especially as we get close to the end of the season. But this was another example of the combination of, of star power and a, a pretty solid marketing push from Disney. It was a film that they inherited from Fox. 
and really just, you know, kind of a, a feel good, well reviewed movie that appealed to a lot of audiences. Now, of course, this is still dominated by by males, 59% reported by by Disney for the opening weekend. 55% were over the age of 25. So we're still seeing that demographic representing the driver of, of the summer's biggest successes, because as we've seen from multiple research studies, it, it remains older audiences, and in particular women over 35, that are the most cautious to go back. And of course, kids under 12 are are kind of at the mercy of their parents who are cautious to take any of their family to movies. Well, there's a link there, right? I mean, right. If, demographically, if you have a kid under 12, you'll probably be around that age yeah. in, in your mid-30s to, to a little bit above, a little bit below. So I think it, that sort of makes sense in, in terms of the vaccination rates and the concerns of the people that are eligible, but are so cautious. Yeah. And that's just something we're going to continue seeing. And it's an especially notable fact going into Shang-Chi here in a few weeks as the first Marvel film that will be exclusive to theaters. And Marvel is an all audiences, all ages movie. So you know, I think overall, the main takeaway is that this is a positive result that should give studios maybe not high confidence, but an increased level of confidence after the last few weeks to continue sticking with most of the release plans for for films aimed at these demographics as we go into the fall season. And really expectations around what happens with the Delta variant are, are wild and various at this time. Yeah, Sean, it seems like every week we're learning more and more about this marketplace and about consumer sentiment with this Delta variant. And of course, we've got a couple of titles coming out this weekend as the industry builds more momentum. But we've got Reminiscence coming out on Friday. Uh, That is from Warner Brothers, if I'm not mistaken. That's a title that I've been interested in in seeing for some time, the creative team behind HBO's Westworld, whose first season I'm a big fan of. But then we've got other uh, wide release is here. We've got titles like The Night House, Finch, The Protégé, and Flag Day coming out into the market. Before we get into what we're looking forward to watching, uh, Rebecca, Sean, what's your expectations for this weekend? I think this weekend will, will probably be a really quiet one in terms of openers. This really, to me, at this point, feels like free guys market until Labor Day weekend for the most part. Um I would be a little surprising if if any of these films, save for Reminiscence, opening above ten million, that even that could be close. It might be high single digit millions. It could be low teens. That's kind of the range we're looking at for the Warner Brothers film. Uh, but with regards to everything else, this is really reflective of what we would normally see at the very end of August. Studios pushing out the last of their their quote unquote summer slate just to get into the market before the a holiday weekend and. Paw Patrol in particular is is an interesting one to look at just because it will be streaming day and date on Paramount Plus. Right, and I didn't course, even mention that. I completely forgot right. we've got a Paramount movie coming out here uh, day and date. Yeah, but as we discussed with demographics, that's squarely targeted at, at kids who are probably not going out to movies right now. So at least in many markets. It, it, so that one in particular maybe had a lot more theatrical potential in another time and place, but uh, such as it is right now, that's probably not going to be the case here. And you know what? I'm I'm actually a little surprised that something like uh, Reminiscence is forecasting to come in, you know, potentially in the single digits uh, for for millions. Um, it's something that I, that I think cerebral sci-fi. That's something that I feel I'm always kind of a little bit interested in. Rebecca, is that up your alley at all? What are you looking forward to this weekend? Um, you know, it is up my alley in. Theory, but um, you know, it's just not something that I've really seen a lot of, of marketing for. So 
On the subject of cerebral sci-fi, I mean, what has caught my attention is the uh, Museum of the Moving Image up in Queens is playing 2001: A Space Odyssey on 70 millimeter, and I gotta, I gotta Ooh. see that before they're before it's gone. I mean, that for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, IFC Center is playing Chunking Express. You know, I'm I'm still on my I'm still I'm still on my rep theater train at this point. <laughs> So, and then, you but know, yeah, moving, I mean, I'm just moving, moving forward, to, you're, yeah, I'm just, you know, Candyman, just Candyman. Yeah. When that comes yeah. Out. <laughs> Candyman on August 27th, I think is in a lot of people's schedules, you know, the, the horror title, um, that from universal that I think will, will bring uh, a good number of audiences back. We'll be following that tracking with all those updates on Sean's weekly columns over at box office pro. But let's move on to the news part of the week because there have been some developments, uh, especially forward-looking, as the industry tries to figure out some stability at this point of the crisis heading into the fall. Rebecca, uh, let's start with the schedule. We've got two major studios that usually go theatrically exclusive. They've moved some titles. What's going on there? Yeah, I, I know kind of no one was pleased to to see these date changes. It kind of feels like uh, a few pebbles skipping down a slope. And are we going to see the avalanche come of additional release date changes? Hopefully not. Um, but we have from Sony, uh, Venom has moved from September 24th to October 15th. That places it on the same release day as Halloween Kills. Not sure if there's mm. enough of a crossover audience to justify right. one or the other of them moving. I mean, one's a superhero movie and one's a, a, a legacy horror franchise. But, I, I, you know, at, at this point you can't really avoid similar films parking on the same release date after a certain point. There are just so many films. Right. Yeah. That, that's a curious bit of traffic right there. Um, you know, whether there's an overlap or not, it's certainly not ideal yeah. uh, at this point, I don't think. I mean, at a certain point, you have to pick a release date and stick to it. So, Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're happy with that. Well, and then actually that is uh, the pick a release date and stick to it model. Uh, has not yet quite come into play for Paramount. They have taken uh, their family film, Clifford the Big Red Dog, which was uh, scheduled for release in September and has just removed it from their schedule entirely. It's been pulled from the TIFF lineup. Uh, there's no indication either way as to whether this will be given another theatrical release date or maybe will be sold off to a streaming service as, as Paramount has done in the past, especially for some of these kids' titles. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, as we mentioned, the, the kids' titles right now are tough with Delta, with the lack of, uh, of younger children being able to get vaccinated. I completely, definitely understand Paramount kind of uh, taking a step back with it, being cautious, being flexible. Um, but again, you know, fingers crossed for a theatrical release, even if it's hybrid, it's, it's better than it going to streaming entirely. I'm curious to see how that day and date um, experiment, because for Paramount, it is an experiment to go day and date, works out for something like Paw Patrol. Like I think, and that's something that, uh, that Sean was saying a second ago, we're probably going to get some insights there that might inform what happens with Clifford. Because as we know, there are massive concerns right now because of this variant. But at the same time, this is a virus that's been with us for a number of months. And family titles have performed well when you give families the option 
to rent their own auditorium. It's something we've written about so many times, Rebecca. Families really respond to these private cinema rentals. It's been something that's worked really well earlier in the pandemic. What's going to happen uh, in the fall, depending with this Delta variant, depending also with the proof of vaccination in certain cities and certain markets, I think private rentals might play a big factor in having some of these family titles stick to theatrical or get theatrical earlier than they otherwise would in being pushed. And talking about, uh, you know, release dates and windows and day and date, you know, these things that we've been talking about, it seems like on a daily basis on this podcast and in our publication, uh, we've got news from Disney regarding the theatrical exclusivity for Shang-Chi. Yeah, and thankfully it's it's less news than lack of news. Uh, Disney had their quarterly investor call last week. If they were going to announce a change to Shang-Chi's release strategy, that's probably where they would have done it, in front of investors who want them to make a lot of money. Um, but no, Disney CEO Bob Iger did confirm that Shang-Chi is sticking to a 45-day theatrical exclusivity window for Shang-Chi. And notably, this decision was made before Free Guy came out with that same 45-day theatrical exclusivity and had a better opening weekend than a lot of people expected it to. Um, and I know we, we've said this again and again, that the industry kind of seems to be aligning around that 45-day theatrical exclusivity window. Um, another kind of uh, evidence of that in AMC's investor call about a week ago, uh, Adam Aaron, CEO of AMC, announced that they will be uh, working with Warner Brothers on that studio's films throughout 2022, honoring a 45-day theatrical exclusivity window there. Uh, not the first deal of that kind that we've seen from Warner Brothers. They previously made a similar 45-day window deal with Cineworld, which, of course, in the U.S., operates as regal. Um, so again, things kind of, things kind of shaken out around, around a new status quo. Another confirmation, not that I think we needed another confirmation at this right, point yeah. that Warner brothers is not going to be going with the day and date beyond the end of this year. I know a lot of folks uh, were wondering, at least when it came to Warner brothers and being the first to go so aggressively day and date, can you put the toothpaste back in the tube? Is it possible to go all in on day and date with the launch of a streaming platform? And then after one year, take it back. As we've seen, that is definitely the case with Warner Brothers making that strong decision and saying, we were first to go day and date to put movies in movie theaters in 2021. And we're gonna keep that commitment to theatrical in 2022 by sticking to a 45 day exclusivity window. And speaking of that, the changes to the status quo, Daniel, that actually brings us to our feature interview today, uh, kind of in a completely different arena than the big Warner Brothers titles, Disney titles, the big Regals, the big uh, AMCs of the world. We're looking here at an app called Kinema. Um, it is referred to by founder Christine Marchese, who we were lucky enough to speak with for this podcast episode as sort of a social cinema platform. Now, what that means is that through the Kinema platform, 
uh, filmmakers and quote unquote hosts can kind of connect to bring exhibition, whether that's in a church, uh, a community center, any large venue, and basically. So not just commercial exhibition. Not it's, just commercial it's exhibition. Any type of exhibition of a feature film or even a short film, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, it, it's it's bringing these films, and right now it's a lot of mission-based documentary advocacy type films two areas where there might be a cinema desert. And and even if there's not a cinema desert, there's probably not a reliable venue with which to see some of these niche films on the big screen in a communal experience with other people who care about uh, those same topics. You know, I I had a chance to to be introduced to the platform a bit uh, earlier this year at the the Tribeca Film Festival. It it definitely looks interesting. And and Daniel, I I hope you agree that, um, you know, Christine's, you know, passion and, and her impetus about taking the experience of exhibition and bringing it to some of these places that uh, might not necessarily easily have that experience. I I think it's a really uh, interesting concept. Well, especially if you want to watch titles that usually don't make it to theaters in your town or in your community, right? I mean, if you look at the demographics of of this country, it's, it's very diverse, but that geographic diversity that we see in populations in the United States isn't always reflected in the geographic distribution and exhibition of movies that might appeal to those communities. I think this platform is a bridge to address some of those gaps in the film culture. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to listen to your conversation. Christy, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Um, you know, I've, I've had the chance to, to read a little bit and actually talk to you a little bit before about, about Kinema. It seems like such an interesting platform, and I'm, I'm really excited to kind of find out more about it and for our listeners to find out more about it as well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rebecca. Can you start by telling me a little bit of, uh, you know, what's your, your background that led you to found Kinema? Sure. Uh, so my background is kind of a mix of three areas, entertainment, um, kind of pop culture, digital, social media, kind of anything online, community building, um, and impact. So I've had a a mix in my career. I worked at Participant Media for a few years. I worked for a TV producer named Norman Lear at his nonprofit, running digital partnerships to get young people to register to vote. Um, And I ran, I started and ran a social impact agency called Picture Motion, where we did impact producing uh, and impact campaigns for filmmakers and distributors. So all of that kind of together uh, brought me to where we are at Kinema. From from what I know about the platform, it really does sound like that's a little bit of a Captain Planet with our powers combined. It fits so well. Uh, could you? Oh, I got to use that. I like that. Yeah. I mean, could you describe for our listeners a, a little bit about uh, what Kinema is and, and what the motivation and drive behind the platform is? Because it's 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 kind of half exhibition, half not exhibition. It's the word disrupting is is, is used far too often, but it is a little <laughs> bit of a, of a twist on exhibition, on streaming, on all the things within this ecosystem. Uh, it is. Yeah, it is a bit of a twist. I'll, I'll give you kind of the, the top line. Um, so what we say is at Kinema, we give everyone their own movie theater to support the filmmaking that they want to see. It's our mission to make it fun and easy, as well as financially and socially rewarding for anyone anywhere to host screenings. Um, and we do this by, we built an operating system essentially for filmmakers to manage their own non-theatrical exhibition or aka screening tours or community screenings or grassroots tours, however you want to call them. 
uh, both online and offline. And also, it's two-part. It's the tech, but it's also supporting um, and develop, supporting filmmakers in developing partnerships and relationships with screening hosts so they can help reach audiences everywhere. So it's part marketplace tech platform, curating films um, and giving them the technology to run their tours, and part building out that network of screening hosts so that we can have um, a wider footprint for every film release. So it's really interesting to me, that idea of you could take, you know, a church, a school, a community center, really any large building or or really anywhere in a space that might otherwise be a cinema desert and bring the exhibition experience to that space. That's exactly it. So when we we started building this in in thought like a couple years ago, and we went to launch in March of 2020, and it was to do exactly that, where how do we better use technology to deliver a film, to manage audiences, to reach audiences, uh, provide marketing assets to our screening hosts so they could have these in-person screenings. And most of the these screening hosts are people that I've worked with or my last company has worked with. So they're organizations, they're brick-and-mortar places, they're individuals, they're advocates, um, passionate people about film or, or social impact. Um, but it was all for in-person screenings. And then when the Mar- pandemic March 2020, hit, like else, yeah. March 2020. I mean, we started our fundraising because the idea was we wanted to bring in some capital to be able to build the platform that we wanted. So we started fundraising and we're launching with our, our MVP or minimum viable product um, in March and the pandemic hit. And so we, we pivoted to virtual like everyone else, but it actually worked out really great in that we're now coming out of this and the, with the world changing, we do think, we know actually we're seeing this, all releases are having a hybrid release. So we're going to see a bit of both. And so for us, we're enabling filmmakers to manage both of those online and offline screenings in, in one place at kinema.com. When you were kind of brainstorming kinema and refining the idea and making it what it is, were there any sort of, you know, other other companies or other businesses or other industries that you thought to? Because to me, this just reminds me very much of like the community cinema scene in the UK, where you just have companies going around to small towns and small communities that don't have cinemas. And they're like, we will bring the exhibition experience. And it's not something that we really have here. It's true. It's, it's probably a mix of things. We've seen different versions of it. So Picture Motion um, does this really well. They really have done grassroots screening tours very well and working with advocates to host these screenings and have calls to actions afterward. So we I saw it on a very bespoke level on a film-by-film campaign. So I know they, they've been doing it really well. Um, Seed and Spark has done an amazing job of helping working with filmmakers to bring their film across the country. We're seeing different types of, of pop-up cinemas um, where just, uh, individuals who are really passionate about film are booking films on their own. Um, but the comp- the finding licenses of these films have been kind of complicated. So it's actually, if you even just wanting to pick any film and trying to book it or show it, you do need the rights to show it. Most people don't realize that. You'd want to make sure the filmmakers get that revenue. And so part of what we're hoping to do is make that seamless so that if we don't represent a film on the platform, we go help and get it um, so we can help connect much easier for, to bring anybody who wants to host a screening to the films that they want to host. So you've been able to hold these virtual screenings for a while now. Um, I know for a much shorter period of time, you've been able to host some in-person screenings. Uh, what kind of films are you are you seeing now that are being screened via the platform? And moving towards to the future, are you looking to get different sorts of films, more mainstream films, or do you still want to keep it to a more, for lack of a better term, mission-based, art house, independent core? 
Yeah, so the, the types of films we're streaming now have, uh, or start initially, the initial films we started with on the platform leaned more social impact and advocacy. And part of that is that's that's what my network is. Um, as we started building and slowly opening up the platform to new filmmakers, we wanted to work with people that we, we knew already. Um, and the second reason is most of our network um, in the of, of our screening hosts do lean more towards advocacy and activism because they know how to organize. And so or putting together a screening event or hosting screenings takes the level of event planning or community building. And so they're, they're naturally do it easily based on the type of work that they do and the issues they're interested in. But that said, we're actually looking to work more with um, individuals and spaces who are becoming regular screening hosts, meaning not just picking per issue or something that's relevant at the time, but using the platform as a source of community building and revenue driving. The way we have it set up is when you pick a film and you organize a screening, you can either sell tickets um, or make it free for your audience. If you make it free for your audience, it's standard. You pay a licensing fee up front. Um, but if you actually are selling tickets, you get a percentage. And the, incentive, the, the t- intention there is to incentivize people to um, to actually bring, bring in money for the filmmaker and themselves. So what we and looking at our data, we actually find the screenings where you sell tickets perform better. People are more committed to show up. They bring in a little bit higher revenue. And so with that, we're going to be working with a wider range of films. So based on a few kind of contracts we have now, in the next couple of weeks, it'll, our, our database will be changing. We'll be about 54% documentary and 46% narrative. And we have 25% will be comedies. Um, so it really is important for us to have a diverse range of genres and types of films to meet the needs of the different exhibitors um, and screening hosts that we have. So, I mean, something we've seen over this last year and a half um, with the advent of virtual cinema, particularly for art house and independent cinemas, is it's like we didn't want to do this. We did not certainly didn't want to have to close our brick and mortar location. But now it's almost an additional screen where we have the opportunity to play maybe some local films or some, some particularly niche films that we just plain wouldn't have had room for before. And, and I think it's really neat that now you can do that, but you can actually still have it be an in-person screening if you can find a space for it. Yeah, it's actually, so this is what we're trying to, I'm trying to find a better way to articulate it, but essentially we think it'll help films that might be considered too niche or too too small of a demographic that have been hard for movie theaters to play because they, they're not they're not certain they can pull in enough people to make it worth the multiple week run, the multiple show times a day, um, or the marketing spend they need to put against it. And so the idea here is if we can partner with spaces, especially going on a very neighborhood level, on a very local level. I live very close to Chinatown here. So like we, the streets in New York change like neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street very quickly. And you have these kind of um, communities of, of some sort of either affinity group or demographic. And so the idea is if we can partner with spaces to host screenings, even just once a week, you can actually show like many different types of films that may seem too niche or too small of a demographic in some way, but it works for that neighborhood. And it works online too. So for us, when we look at the films that we want to bring on, we're also looking at international films and foreign language films. We did, uh, one of my favorite screenings we did was for Be Water, which was uh, the Bruce Lee documentary. And you see when there's certain figures or certain individuals, or certain stories that speak so uh, profoundly to certain communities, there's no, there's amazing turnout and there are amazing experiences to share together. So Yes, it's, we think that this could be a part solution for kind of expanding exhibition and bringing in new films um, and a wider range of films to have that in-person experience in a way that financially works for everybody. Yeah, we definitely need that flexibility. Or, I mean, whether or not the industry needs that flexibility, 
flexibility has been forced upon us yes. <laughs> and we have to deal with it's it. <laughs> it's very true. Yeah. For better, for worse, like the, the pandemic has cracked open some issues in the system. And for us, what's been fun is we, we're already coming at this from like a filling the need perspective. Like we have, we have tens of thousands of screening hosts that booked films um, through us and through my last company. So we're already kind of filling a need, but then we're seeing even more opportunity in the conversations between, it feels so binary in some ways, right? Like it's theatrical release where you're, uh, you're going into a theater. Um, with strangers, more or less, um, or you're watching alone at home online. And for us, this is kind of somewhere in the middle where there's a lot of art house, a lot of documentary films are releasing, but you're going out in person, but probably watching with an affinity group. If you're going to your church or if you're going to your yoga studio or going to your ACLU chapter um, to watch one of these films, you have some sort of connective tissue already. So it it is this concept of of social cinema. So it's smaller, it can be more niche, but you're still getting out of your home for um, an entertainment experience. And then same with virtually. You can watch, you know, by yourself. I, I watch everything. I have all the subscriptions at this point. I watch a ton of content. Um, but what we love about the virtual platform is you get the experience of sharing it with someone else through both the chat and the video. So for the for the in-person screenings, how does the film uh, get delivered, like on a, on a technical level? What's the infrastructure there? Yeah, right now we're just calling it like our projection booth. So you as the filmmaker upload the film and assets just one time. And then any of our hosts can go in. If they choose that film, they set their screening date and time and they get access to uh, locally served space online where they can download the film safely and securely, but it disappears after the time of their screening. So through their Kinema account, they'll get access to that film in that limited window. They can do test screenings and they'll be have a big watermark on it. And again, it disappears after their screening. On our end, we can then monitor each of those hosts and how many times they're accessing that film to make sure it's just for uh, the, the time in which they paid for or have or we've been able to access to. Make sure that filmmaker's getting paid for their right Exactly. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's great for the host because it's all digitally on their computer. They don't have to worry about Wi-Fi because it's downloaded, but it's safe, secure. We can put watermarks on it too if the filmmaker wants us to. Um, we have all the DRM approvals and we can track everything. So who, who's coming to you? So when they see about your platform, is it like a like a local ACLU chapter, a local group saying, oh, we want to see what this platform has. Or do you have like filmmakers coming to you saying, hey, we have this film. Could you help us maybe find the, the perfect uh, the perfect group to partner with? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about who's coming to us, um, we kind of have exactly what you said. We have those two categories. We have the the filmmakers who are coming, looking both for for technology to aid them in running their own tours, but also for audience. Um, And that's what we're offering are both the the tech and also the audience development. Um, Part of it is just... That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in serving um, communities and serving the screening hosts and bringing them great films and easy technology to work with. Um, but we, you know, we don't do bespoke individual campaigns. Our job is building relationships um, with repeat hosts and repeat bookers um, and making sure we're bringing them films um, that they want to book. So while we don't do kind of individual bespoke marketing campaigns per film, we're not committed in that way to ensuring like X amount of people. Um, we are building out our network. Um, and the idea there is that when we bring on films, we think it'll be, uh, these will be films that'll work for our screening hosts. And so that we do email marketing and then some outreach from there. Okay. But then once you, once you schedule a film, it's on you for marketing it and getting people to buy tickets and getting it out. Like you facilitate it, but you still got to make sure people show up. 
Well, that's the interesting part. So when, if you're a screening host, you're coming to us, you're probably one of two archetypes. You're a community builder or you're an entrepreneur. And so for your community builder, you already represent some sort of community, meaning, again, it could be faith, education, culture, um, activism, whatever that is. Mo- pretty much all of our screening hosts have their own email lists or their own social following. So they're kind of, they're taking on the marketing in a way. But it's not just for the film, it's because the experience they're creating or for whatever their primary business or, or, or point of connectivity is with their audience. And the second one for the entrepreneurs, that's the money driver. They, they are built, they're cashing in on their social following because they're getting a, a percentage of the ticket revenue. Um, or they see this as a way to bring in um, supplementary income for themselves by doing these online or in-person screenings because they love film or very passionate about certain types of film. I think I, I worked at a movie theater in high school and it was very, I was in all my film editing classes that I could in high school in, in, in Southern California. And so I was, I was really lucky in that way, but we didn't have art house cinema. We had like one major, um, I think it was an Edwards cinema at the time, which now might be a regal. Um, we had one major cinema. And if I had the option to curate um, or if I had the option to make money, I would have run my own local cinema. I would have been curating for my friends. It just wasn't an option. Well, I'm uh, I'm visiting family now in, in a small town in North Carolina and they had I don't think it wasn't technically an art house cinema. It was a community center that screened a lot of art house films and they went out of business and said, we're not reopening like pretty much right after the pandemic. I think it takes like a, a, someone who wants to be that, that curator too, for uh, a community. We have um, one of our favorite screening hosts um, is a pastor in Clarksville, Tennessee, and he has a couple spaces that he'll bring films into. And in his words, you know, they don't have the closest art house um, cinema or place to watch any sort of documentary art house cinema is 90 minutes away. And they have like a, a large uh, movie theater and it'll play mostly like the the, the tent poles and the marvels, which again, I love. Um, but for him, he sees it as an opportunity to bring in art and education and develop community. Um, and so he books regularly with us. What's your geographic footprint so far? I could say that we have about 20,000 um, hosts um, in our network that we have relationships with, uh, about 450 that are active on the platform right now. So it depends on the rights we have for the film. So yeah, what's fun about that is if a filmmaker has their worldwide like non-theatrical virtual or just non-theatrical rights, they can organize a screening and invite anyone from all over the world to do it. And same thing, if they have the the, um, worldwide non-theatrical or maybe just a few select countries, we can program that. So then let's say the film is only available in the U.S., then only hosts can book in the U.S. Let's say it's available anywhere. Anyone can book it. If you're in the Philippines, you want to book an in-person screening, you can still use our tech and access the film safely and securely and have your pop-up screening in person. Finally, could you tell anyone here listening who might be interested in learning more about Kinema or seeing uh, seeing your, your film library or just finding out more about what's available, where should they go? Sure. A, a few different places. If uh, We're also going through rebranding and updating the site, so there's more coming soon. Uh, but if you're a filmmaker, just go to kinema.com and check it out. You can just um, fill out the form and reach us and tell us more about your film and we'll reach out back to you. Um, we love working with art house and independent filmmakers. Um, if you're interested in just attending screenings or experiencing social cinema, go to kinema.com slash discover and come to some of our upcoming screenings. Um, myself and some of the film team, we host our own virtual screening every Monday at eight o'clock. Um, so Monday, eight o'clock, there'll always be something you can join it and chat with us. Awesome. I love that, that interactive component, you know, like nothing can beat being in a physically in a movie theater, but I think after this last, you know, I need some kind of interactive component. I need that experience of like being in a room with my friend talking about the movie. 
Yes, I think so too. Also, we found that like the we love the the surprise and delight. So like on Monday, we screened um, the the documentary Kenny Sharp When Worlds Collide, um, and his daughter was the director of the film. And we had in um, a, a culture critic, and we had the filmmakers. And it's just, you get these really personal experiences because you're talking to the filmmakers in their home. You just watched the movie and now they're coming to you live on Zoom. All of our audience can ask questions. And halfway through, like Kenny, the subject of the film, just surprised everybody and popped in. And so you get this like really, yeah, unique experience of it's a live event. You're connecting with other people and you get this fun access um, to the filmmakers. And we actually don't record or um, post on the site those Q&As. They're kind of, they're once um, you have to be there to experience it. Exclusive. You need to have that exclusivity angle. Like, exactly. You're, you're not going to see this on YouTube. FOMO. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, and we help facilitate that for our screening host too. It sounds so great. I'll, I'll definitely check out one of those Monday eight o'clock screenings <laughs> or hopefully an in-person one soon. We'll see. But thank you so much yes, for joining please. us. Thanks in addition to Daniel and Sean. Thanks to uh, our producers, The Box Office Company, who co-produced The Box Office Podcast in collaboration with Record Edit Podcast. We will hopefully be able to see as many of you as we can at CinemaCon next week. If you are not able to make it to CinemaCon this year, Daniel, Sean, and myself will be hosting daily podcasts from CinemaCon, uh, John Fithian, Rolando Rodriguez, Charles Rivkin, even more. And in addition to that, we will be sharing our insights and analysis from on the ground at CinemaCon in Vegas. And please do visit our website, boxofficepro.com, to register for our next live session taking place from CinemaCon, Thursday, August 26, 7 o'clock in the morning. Great time for European listeners, where again, we will be analyze uh, the news of what's been going down at CinemaCon, in addition to uh, welcoming and speaking to several special guests. So hopefully uh, we will we will see you there and uh, have a great rest of your week. Mm-hmm.